Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Sarah Wheaton. I'm senior health policy reporter with Politico based here in Brussels. And this is the Global Policy Lab Decoding Cancer conference call. Uh, this week, um, we are wrapping up our third chapter. Our first chapter, we went to Germany to look at research. Second one, we looked at um, treatment issues, especially pursuing innovation in France. And uh, I just got back from Bucharest this morning um, following a, a roundtable with experts um, from Central and Eastern Europe that we held in Romania where we were talking about bridging the gap. And um, in, in a moment, uh, you'll, you'll, uh, I will host a conversation with somebody who is part of that roundtable discussion. Um, but uh, first, I want to thank our partners, Pfizer and IBM Watson Health, for making this event possible. And I will give the floor to Roar Johansson. He's the medical oncology subject matter expert for IBM Watson Health, and he'll give us a few introductory remarks. Hello, and um, thank you for inviting me for giving me this uh, remarks today. Uh, I'm truly happy for the engagement around the cancer development in the world. And uh, there was a long title. I've just said that I'm a medical and radiation oncologist. That's my background. And I uh, recently joined IBM for uh, bringing more of the clinical expertise into the development of, uh, of our oncology field. So I, I think that this year and at this time, I think the key word for our challenge, wherever you live around the globe, I think it is the access to transparency and quality within oncology field. For a patient, getting a cancer is a huge game changer in a bad sense. Nobody's prepared for that situation. And suddenly, your income, country, and network might actually influence your prognosis and the forecast to survive. It's all dependent on access to updated health personal, correct clinical information, and the trial knowledge. From a patient's perspective, it's really difficult to embrace this new and difficult situation without a clear roadmap and a transparent process. From a health personal perspective, the challenge is to be able to provide best practice with access to the new trials to include patients into, access to best publications and use protocols. I personally, and in IBM, will believe that artificial intelligence can open these doors independently on borders, geographic and financial resources. Our goal is to work to provide transparent data on a democratic manner by sharing clinical data and potential treatment options, as well as access to new clinical trials. So this is uh, the remarks I would like to come with, to keep on working on the transparency, and everybody should have the right to get access to data, independently if you have a low or high income country. And uh, I think it's actually our duty to work on this process. So I would like to, uh, to, we, will, we will do our best in IBM to work on this topic, and I think it would be a very happy to be able to participate in this political di discussion, which is necessary to go forward. Thank you. Thank you so much, Roar. And um, now to our audience, before we get started, I just want to uh, let you know that you can ask questions 
um, using the Q&A tool of the Zoom control bar from your computer or device. And if you're calling us just using a regular phone, you can still use the link on your computer to have access to the Q&A even while you're listening on your phone. And now for the main event, I want to start our conversation with Sharunas Narbudis, and he's the chairman of Youth Cancer Europe. He's based in Lithuania, and before I give too much more of, of an introduction to him, I'm actually going to uh, let Sharunas tell you a little bit about his own story. He's not only an advocate and an expert on cancer issues, but uh, he has a very personal experience. So Sharunas, uh, thank you for joining us. Pleasure being here, especially in the World Cancer Day. Indeed, indeed. Very, we, we had perfect timing with this conference call. Totally intentional, let me tell you. Um, but can you just tell us a little bit about your journey um, to becoming uh, an advocate for, um, for cancer survivors? All right, so, so uh, I was diagnosed with chronic malignant leukemia, which is type of blood cancer, when I was 18. So that was 12 years ago. And uh, so it is not a usual diagnosis at that age group. So normally, the people with, with uh, CML are diagnosed uh, when they are over 65 years of age. And the incidence rate even in that population is one in 65,000. So to get cancer in, in that age uh, category, so it's not pediatric, it's that very, very young adult, mm. it's very unlikely. And I have no cancer history in, in my family, so no relatives, which, which is really, really unusual, well, you know, considering even the, the Lithuanian landscape, which is where I'm living. So I was quite unusual that I did not have, you know, uh, someone of my relatives who had been diagnosed with diabetes cancer, and I got cancer. It's, uh, I was fit all my life. I was going to the gym. I was not, you know, smoking or drinking. There was... Uh, well, eating even properly. I was going, getting back from school to home because it was like five minutes walk to, to get lunch. So, you know, all of the risk factors, take it off. And uh, it's, I still got it. Mm -hmm. And uh, on the other side, you know, since I was eight years old, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to defend people. That, that was this righteousness thing, you know. In, in, mm -hmm. So this is a, a bit of, of what, you know, I channeled all of my disease experience at first, uh, when, when I was coping with that disease at that moment, that was 2006. And, uh, and at that time, there was, uh, you know, first targeted therapies in cancer uh, world available. So it was imaginative. And, and I got it, uh, not easily, but I got it reimbursed through the country. But then I was feeling guilty that I was getting an easy way out comparing of other patients even with the same diagnosis. So at that time, it was like 16% of patients that were getting the modern treatment and others had to go through their frustrating chemo, have bone marrow transplantation. Every month I was going back to hospital. I was seeing the same people who were becoming more frail, uh, you know, having a lot of fatigue, not looking good. And I was feeling bad that I got an easy way out. So I thought I need to do something about it. And then when I graduated my high school, because it was the last year in the school, I, I uh, created a website with, with, uh, with a blog and forum. That was a new good thing at the time. And I created the first online petition in Lithuania, which was uh, signed by 6% of all the population, which equaled to, to 180,000 signatures. And this is where I ended up in patient advocacy, because that petition made a change. Uh, I, I hosted the press conference in the Lithuanian Parliament. The next year, the funding for that specific disease, blood cancer, was doubled. 
uh, I've got a written commitment from Minister of Health that we will work with you on a yearly basis to improve access. In two years, we covered all the patients who needed it. In two more years, we covered the patients, not just through the first-line therapies, but second-line and third-line therapies. And in the meantime, I got enrolled in university where I wanted, I studied, I graduated, I pursued my path as a lawyer in the biggest law firm in the Baltics, uh, as a life sciences expert uh, uh, lawyer. Then I went, left the private sector, joined the team of the president of Republic of Lithuania, was a legal advisor there, uh, and uh, then went out from there. So this is what, what what's my 12-year journey in patient advocacy. I, I do not see it as you know a career path. Yeah. I'm a lawyer, I'm also a, a consultant to, to big global companies on strategic uh, elements. But this is where my passion is, is in patient advocacy. And what I see is through all of these barriers that I have to face at national level or European level, I do not want that you know, experience go to waste so that I could not help other people. And I, I'm, I'm sure that not everyone has you know, all of the required skill sets to stand for themselves. So we need someone and we need to help each other. And this is why you know, we need to foster with patient advocacy, which is not taken as a given in Central Eastern European context. We need to understand that we come after post-Soviet tradition where there is no volunteering culture, there is no trust in NGOs normally, uh, there is not a lot of altruism coming in, very difficult to do activities, get some funding from private or public sources, and still it's very needed. So, so that so that that kind of leads me to my next question. I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, patient groups and and several different uh, cancer patient groups at the European level. Why create Youth Cancer Europe? Why did we need another European level cancer patient group? Yeah, so as a patient advocate, I'm active at three levels. So one is national, where I'm head of the umbrella organization for cancer patients which is the biggest patient organization in the country. It's like the top five NGO in the country. Then another is European layer, Youth Cancer Europe, what you're asking. And another one is global layer with my specific disease, chronic neogenes leukemia under the network. So about Youth Cancer Europe. So it is for young cancer survivors, age 18 to 39. Why? As you say, there are so many organizations because there is no one advocating for the young patients, right? So we have a pediatric, cancer patient field, and that's about uh, not often dealing with patients directly, but more with the parents. And then you have so many other patient organizations in, that are disease-specific, you know, prostate, breast, brain tumors, whatever you name it. And uh, I was, you know, in various boards at the time, European level, global level of those organizations. All the time, I was the youngest person in the room. And while I'll resonate with all of these uh, questions that uh, are being put in place about, you know, access to therapies, about better screening, better prevention, but none of the topics that were particularly interested uh, to me were resonating with, uh, with those peers in the room. For instance, what about infertility? Uh, what about mental health problems of the survivorship? What about financial discrimination? Not when the healthcare system is really me messing you up, but when you try to obtain, you know, private health insurance, private disease-specific insurance, you want to get mortgage, etc. you want to start business, you can't. Because as a cancer patient or survivor, you're seen as a big risk. And that's, uh, you know, straight flat discrimination on, uh, on all of those elements. So this is why Youth Cancer Europe is there to showcase that there is an increasing number of people living in Europe with cancer, not dying, and we were likely to live 20, 30, 50 more years with uh, wanting to be con contributing to society, not to be a burden to society. 
And then there's a different set of, of issues that we're bringing to the table. And the other factor that, that I didn't realize um, and that isn't as evident from the name is that Youth Cancer Europe is really focused on, um, or it was at least founded by people based in Eastern Europe. And so it still kind of has a special focus on that region. Your, your co-founders are based in Romania. And yes. um, one thing that really came up during our roundtable that we had in Bucharest was um, the role that corruption plays, um, unfortunately, in, in um, treatment of, for cancer patients and really, uh, you know, around the region for in the health system in general. And I understand that um, uh, the, Roma or the Lithuanian patients group that you work with has actually done an in-depth study of uh, corruption in the health system in Lithuania. And I was hoping you could share um, some of the main findings from that. Yes, so I'll try to be brief because it has many layers, but it's to start with, you know, many of my colleagues, peers in patient advocacy in Germany, France, or UK, they can focus on, you know, speaking about we need more innovation, they need access to data, you know, and all, all the nice things we, I would want to talk about. But, you know, most of the time we have to spend really combating corruption at, at the national level similar in Lithuania, similar in Romania or, or Bulgaria. And I do not want your uh, listeners to think that, you know, all Central Eastern European is has major corruption in healthcare. Actually, many countries have dealt with it successfully, like Estonia, like Czech Republic, Slovakia, Slovenia. So Lithuania is one of the bad examples in there. And uh, so this is a topic that we, uh, we also uh, have raised at national level, have been raising for the past three years since we wanted some change, not just some political talk avoiding the topic, but the real impact change because there's an annual, uh, you know, surveys being done by various agencies, some are sponsored by Minister of Health, others like by Transparency International and the Corruption Barometer, but that, that uh, data in Lithuania is brutal. It shows that the healthcare sector is the most corrupt in Lithuania, Whereas uh, over 37% of all the people who were surveyed said they have given bribe to someone in the healthcare field in the past, uh, during past 12 months. And we also replicated the similar study just in the cancer patients cohort. And we saw that over 50% of cancer uh, patients have given bribe to the specialist in Lithuania in the past, during the past 12 months. So that is very terrible data, and that data we, we trusted it, and it, we see the same trend. You know, it's not, it was not done just once. Once it, it, we see the same trend for the past three years, and we call for this uh, annual, uh, you know, service to be done and monitor it. And the, this is where it's still enrooted, but we actually see that we are not just raising it like it's a problem, but we look for the solutions. What could be a systemic solution, so there could be a governmental approach, but also the civil society-wide approach. And some of those things, I don't want you to burden, uh, burden you with all you know, the explanations about strategic plans, etc. But three very simple things what we're asking as a patient to combat corruption. Mm -hmm. one, one is that we want to be clear about what are the waiting times in our country to get the service because we are living into the public uh, healthcare system, so we have a right to get the service free of charge. When is the time? We need to have a regulation of that. It's implemented in cancer field and it proved to be a success. Uh, seven years ago, an average time for the patient when he would be sus suspected of having cancer diagnosis to be really diagnosed 
It would take him six months, 12 months, just, you know, going around the circle from one specialist to another to get that confirmation. And at that time, you lose lives, the disease is progressing, it becomes very difficult, right? And what we did, uh, well, we, we lobbied for the other regulation, which is specific for cancer patients, which shows that in 14 calendar days, you have to see the specialist, you know, after being suspected of cancer. And when the disease is confirmed with 14 more calendar days, you have to start therapy. And in 2018, we know for sure that in the, the specialist centers, we have six hospitals treating cancer patients in Lithuania. All of these hospitals met that standard as like roughly, let's say, one month, you know, from suspecting diagnosis to start the therapy, which is a huge gain. And we ask for the same thing in other disease fields, both not just cancer. So that's the option, the, the issue number one. Issue number two is about we want to uh, see how healthcare um, institutions, hospitals, polyclinics are performing in terms of each other. What's the benchmark? Is the quality of service equal or not? And this is something that we know will go uh, live later this year, where it's all regulation draft, it's just implementation stage. And the third thing, very simple thing, uh, we want every service, you know, every healthcare provision going to the family doctor, to the specialist, so that after each of them, uh, patients uh, would be asked to provide feedback, you know, virtually, electronically. However, it works on two simple things. One is, how satisfied are you with the service from the rate one to 10? And would you recommend the service uh, to, to you know, someone you, you love? How likely is that you will recommend this place? So that we could get an actual, you know, think of what is working and, and what's not working and not just fill the tick boxes that everything is fine. So I like that. It's sort of a it's sort of a trip advisor or a Yelp uh, yeah. approach to uh, to uh, not just improving service but but also fighting corruption. Um, I wanna we actually got a, a question um, um, from a listener, and um, I think I think you would have a really useful perspective on this. She asks, "What recommendations do you have for people in Central and Eastern Europe who want to take advantage of the cross border healthcare directive?" And for any um, listeners who don't know what that is, officially in, in Europe, you're supposed to be able to travel to another, if you're an EU citizen, you're supposed to be able to travel to another EU country and your home country will reimburse you for care there. But there have been some issues with whether people can actually use it. Yeah, very good question. And the, 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 this topic is very close and dear to my heart because I was also involved in drafting that director, uh, directive in, uh, through the uh, European Patient Advocacy Organization. So. Uh, normally, cross-border healthcare is benefiting Western Europeans, not Eastern ones, because plainly the you know uh, the payment there for services is higher. So if you would go to the, the country which is you know let's say covering like three thousand euros for the hip replacement, you can choose an ample of countries to choose from, including Central Eastern European countries. Therefore, avoiding the queues at your national member state. Whereas if you come from Central Eastern European countries, you can't really benefit from Western Europe because you would just uh, you know, get partial coverage, let's say so, and uh, then you will have to pay up a, uh, out of pocket or get private insurance. But still, still there are opportunities because we see about the waiting times in different disease areas are very different in, in the Central Eastern European countries. Most of that because most countries are small and in small market, uh, markets you have, you know, certain types of specialists that uh, uh, have a higher concentration of them in the country or some services can be easily rendered and this is where you could benefit. So the thing is actually what you're asking is one of the, of the 
projects listed in the white paper of Youth Cancer Europe, a policy paper for action plan in European level. One of that is actually map all the services uh, in cancer field uh, relevant to cancer patients in different EU member states, Central Eastern European countries as well as Western countries, to see you know, what are the actual costs, how they are costing every national member state, and what is the waiting time to get them. And then if we can identify this sweet spot, for instance, that you could get the service abroad, which could be just over the border, which would actually mean you do not have to pay out of pocket to get it, but you would get it, you know, next week instead of after a few months. This would be a really win situation. Of course, travel costs, accommodation costs will not be covered. And uh, when speaking, if the country is close by, so you can really travel, you know, the same day and, and go back because it goes for outpatient services, for the inpatient services, when you have to spend the night at the hospital, it's more difficult. Uh, so that, that way is difficult, more difficult to approach. But one thing is clear, member states are not doing uh, well enough or not doing things properly to actually uh, make sure that the citizens could be entitled to access cross border healthcare. And uh, uh, they are a bit of what I call the hypocrites in that regard, because they are precluding that way for the movement of uh, plainly funds to leave their country and go to other countries. But this is where actually patient uh, organizations should step up and we should not be just complaining, but doing more, doing better in terms of what we uh, can do ourselves of mapping what is the current situation and showcasing what is the problem like. Well, and I'm glad that you brought up the, the Youth Cancer Europe white paper because that's a, a perfect uh, segue point for me. So part of the reason that we invited you to join us is because we thought you would be the perfect person to help us transition from our third chapter to our fourth chapter. So our third chapter has been focusing on inequalities um, around uh, Europe um, that are sort of based on geography and, and socioeconomic status. But our next chapter, um, our fourth chapter, will be based on will be looking at issues of long-term care and survivorship, and we'll be calling that chapter the long run. Um, and so on that note, what are kind of the top uh, needs for, for cancer survivors um, that, that you have, have pinpointed at Youth Cancer? Right. So cross-border cross is one thing that, that you mentioned. Yes, so it, it's one of the five areas we are working on. And these five topics did not came just you know, out of the blue of my mind or something. We mm -hmm. did an analysis where putting people from 19 countries in Europe, that was our outreach at the time, uh, that they identified the problems at the national level and then we look for similarities. So the five topics where we created a sophisticated, you know, 40 plus page document, uh, we did our, all of the research ourselves with all visuals and etc. and we presented in the European Parliament in October and we'll continue to do one event yearly on those topics so we could focus on implementation not just ranges and awareness on it. So the first topic which we, we started uh, was financial discrimination, exactly what I was going for the mortgages uh, where that it's so difficult for patients to get them or to get the disease-specific insurance and uh, uh, all of that. So this was where we, we saw there's so much of the interest from other countries to tap it on. That, this topic went viral and this was also a topic today. Uh, in Lithuanian Parliament when we were hosting this uh, World Cancer Day in, uh, in in our Lithuanian organization. So that's one topic. Second topic is cross-border healthcare. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not just from the regular point that I would like to travel abroad, but that's why. Because when you deal with the young people dealing with cancer, most of the time the doctors do not see the patients in that age group. 
they haven't seen such case in their in their life, even if they've been practicing 30, 40 years, because these are very rare. And it doesn't mean like these patients, like you cannot treat them uh, as you would treat an elderly patient, but it just would mean that these patients will have a different side effect portfolio, adverse event for the, uh, profile, that they would actually have different type of uh, key concerns to them, like is fertility preservation, right? Which is a major like thing to discuss that you would not take up with a person who is 70 plus years of age, most of the time, okay, so. Uh, so all of these elements, and for that we see that then patients, they try to identify specialists somewhere in Europe, which is actually specializing in, in, in this age group on this particular disease. And believe me, there are specialists like this for nearly every disease in cancer field. It's just we do not know about it. And while we have European reference networks for various you know, rare diseases, it's also for pediatric cancers, but this is something which goes missing. So the patient which would be, you know, fall within just a regular cancer uh, system, and he would not be given opportunity most of the time to try something innovative, something new, uh, just because they wouldn't know how to tailor this to the young patient's reality. So that was second topic. Third one, and I will be more brief, was it? <laughs> yeah, we've got five minutes for... Uh, yeah, four was on uh, surgical reconstructions, for instance, after breast cancer, but even after lung cancer, and fifth was mental health. And, you know, mental health is not a major topic in Central Eastern European countries, but in Western Europe, it is one of the biggest topics, uh, you know, in all health policy. And mental health for cancer survivors, for instance, how we see it's, it's really a big thing in the UK right now. And, of course, this will uh, come. And all of these things, are what I mentioned, it pertains not so much with the treatment element. It uh, pertains to quality of life element and survivorship aspect that we do not focus too much in Europe. We spend so, so much time talking about access to therapies, right to diagnosis, screening, prevention, and not about getting back to the normal life. And I'm gonna ask you one last question, and it's a little bit of a curveball, and we only have about two, um, two minutes to give you to answer it, so I apologize in advance. But um, you know, we were talking about patient advocacy a lot here, and one challenge that seems to come up frequently is, um, patient groups uh, rely on donations um, in order to operate. Often those donations come from the pharma industry, and, but that can sometimes make it harder for them to show their independence. So what, um, what are your thoughts on how the best way for, for patient groups to, to show their credibility and independence? So in Poland, at Lithuanian organization, we actually, just before the new year, uh, we created this financial diversification strategy document, which says that uh, one third of the income should come from the public sources. So most of the time, it's like through the tendering, like we won a government tender for something or EU tender. Uh, one third should come from a private sector, be it pharmaceutical companies, but also other companies, you know, might be an ICT field might be just really companies uh, trying to the, help patient organizations through the corporate social responsibility angle. And one third go for the uh, public donations, you know, when the people would uh, donate the part of their income tax, et cetera, we have a 2% income tax donation in Lithuania. So that's a strategy. Uh, and most of the time, when the, because I was raising this a lot with my, with my peers in, in different countries, I'm also on patient, British Medical Journal Advisory Board, what we discuss all of these ethic things so frequently, and there's no ideal thing. And in Central Eastern European countries, uh, you know, it's, there's no even rules what to take or not to take. We, the debate is not there because the, the culture for discussing NGO sustainability is not there. 
But so this would be an ideal world, what I said, you know, one third from, uh, from each element. And you may ask me, is it realistic for us to reach that in Lithuania? So two years ago, our like 8% of income was coming from private sector. A year later, it was 80% coming from public sector. So, and of course, we're missing this uh, public donations to, mm -hmm. to the people given in, but this, this is also growing like twice every year, and we, we are maintaining that, uh, that growth for the past few years. So it's an ongoing journey, but it, it has to have some reference and what's good or what's bad, because, you know, uh, it is very easily to criticize either patient advocates who try to do the right thing, right? Not to do it for a living, not to make their careers out of it, uh, or and for the patient, uh, for, for the pharma companies who just seem like we have agenda and everything. But there's also a sweet spot in the middle because at the end, you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies, medical devices companies, the healthcare professional associations and patient organizations, we are allies in the same cause as we function in the same ecosystem. And you cannot have ecosystem with one missing part of it because then you will not progress. And that, of course, the, the public policy of the watchdogs and the things like what, what it should be cleared about, but I think even if we would have more discussion, more frequent, you know, in-depth discussions on how this should be, it would be already a, a huge step forward, maybe a leapfrog, what we'll say. <laughs> Thank you for getting that word leapfrog <laughs> in there. That's perfect. And we're, we're right about out of time. We've had actually a very broad discussion over the past half hour. We talked about this sort of generation of, of young, um, young activists, many of them cancer survivors themselves in the Eastern European region who have been inspired to, to get involved, including Shrewness. Um, we've looked at um, kind of some practical ways that we may be able to combat um, corruption in the health system. We've also uh, talked about um, uh, the need for, for both member countries and Europe uh, and patient groups to help people better take advantage of the promise of cross-border healthcare. And we also looked at issues like uh, financial discrimination and mental health care that are especially relevant for cancer survivors and especially young cancer survivors. Um, and, uh, and lastly, this bit of practical advice for how to think about um, um, finding the right, the right balance for, for patients groups in this bigger ecosystem. So, uh, Shrunas Nervous, thank you so much for, for joining us on World Cancer Day, a busy day for you, and thanks to all of our listeners. Um, keep following uh, the Global Policy Lab for our next chapter on long-term care.